Welcome back, Age Sipians. What a difference a week can make. Uh, we were at Mary at Medical Education and Research Institute last week, literally seven days ago, and it was hot, mid-October hot. Now, a hurricane comes through, and uh, it's fall. <laughs> so um, that's kind of I, what I've noticed uh, in my career. It's just things just come by us so fast. It's, it's hard to, um, you know, it, it's almost hard to believe how much things have changed. Uh, who would have thought we would be using the term medical marijuana in the same sentence uh, 15 years ago? And who would have thought of regenerative medicine, as uh, ASIP is so well known for, uh, and is now a mainstream uh, thought uh, I, I predict within the next few years, uh, corticosteroids into a joint space or wherever uh, is going to be the second, then the third, then the fourth choice as we start uh, learning more about exosomes and start really getting a handle on PRP. be nice if insurance covered it and eventually will. But um, we're seeing some success with workman's comp. So... The course at uh, Mary was uh, the spine. We did uh, endoscopic spine. We did uh, regenerative medicine, and uh, I participated in in the interventional side of uh, standard care, uh, spine, and uh, other considerations. What we are doing now, with some success, I mean, we're we're learning on that steep curve, but we have some success at retaining our intellectual property. And we recorded this interventional course. It went a little rocky at first. We had some battery problems and et cetera, but it's high quality. So we're going to eventually be able to put this probably on Bluetooth. So you'll be sitting in a traffic jam, listen to your peeps uh, talking spine and uh, regenerative medicine and all the cool things that we do. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's fun to think of the uh, technology that we're going to be throwing at our courses so that uh, we don't just lose these incredible lectures. And today, um, I have one. Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing a uh, true superstar. Uh, he's a uh, interventionalist that has uh, not only a a grasp on reality, but he's a researcher. And um, it's like when you sit with him, it's like plugging your head in a light socket. Uh, this individual uh, was with Dr. Spiel at a dinner we were at, and they were going back and forth with um, this carnival of intellectualism. I, I just had to lay my cell phone down just to record him because it, it was unbelievable. They were talking regenerative medicine. And so I get to uh, sit him down for a little bit. I, You know, as I do, I ambush people, corner them, and uh, get to talk to him for a while, and it it was fun. Um, it it was really uh, it was an honor of mine to sit with him and talk with him. And I'm not going to delay this any longer. I want to tell you a little bit about him. Ricardo Vallejo has been a uh, partner with uh, Ramson Bemniyaman. They they're very synergistic. Uh, 
He's been with him for over a decade. That's awesome. He is a uh, Ph.D. in immunology. Uh, what a perspective that is, especially as we talk regenerative medicine. He trained at University of Miami, chief resident there, and then went to Mass General. We call that Harvard for fellowship. Um, he has a, a clinical research program and a lab, and it's focused on a neuroglial uh, interaction by application of electrical waveforms and algorithms. Yeah, that's a mouthful. But I got to tell you, this uh, glial activity is fascinating. I got to, uh, or I had the pleasure of hearing a, a lecture from one of the one of the leading uh, uh, individuals in uh, glial um, research from University of Colorado. And she's going to be at the annual meeting. Be sure and make that meeting in May. Linda Watkins is doing incredible things. Uh, Dr. Watkins showed us some uh, video of some sad pups. These are uh, canines that were very close to euthanized. Um, Couldn't get upstairs. Um, It was was just as sad as could be until they got interleukin-10, IL-10. This is what she's working on, and they turned into puppies. Uh, this is video, and video doesn't lie. She's going to be at the annual meeting, as is uh, John Nance. He was a real good uh, lecture a few years ago talking about his experience as a, a pilot. Um, and Sherry Albers, uh, she's going to be a keynote speaker. She's fantastic with uh, uh, her discussions about uh, radiology, its implications, uh, ultrasound, which to me is still a snowstorm, and we'll see Andrea there, and Ramson's going to be talking uh, as well. We have a lot of others there. This meeting is packed with great and, and, and distinguished speakers, so be sure and make the annual meeting. You won't regret it. All right, let's, uh, let's get into uh, discussions today. And great pleasure that I get to uh, speak with uh, Dr. Vallejo, MD, PhD, and uh, let's give him a warm welcome. Here we go. Once again, we're at Mary. That's in uh, Memphis, and it's an educational facility that is attached to the university. We're looking at the university right now and a number of hospitals. Uh, Memphis is a great town. There's a lot to do. This is a fantastic facility. We come here often, and uh, we do testing here and uh, learn skills. And we learn from uh, what I think is the best faculty uh, in the world. And one of the faculty sits across from me right now. Who are you? Hi, Hans. My name is uh, Ricardo Vallejo. And where do you practice? I'm practicing in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. Uh, Ramson Ben-Yaman uh, seems to know you, right? <laughs> yeah, we have been partners for almost 17 years now. That's great. Um, and they have a thriving practice, well-known practice. They do a lot of research. I would say, um, in my opinion, you're one of the world leaders, if not the world leader, in stimulation and um, I'm probably just going to let you run with this because I saw your lecture yesterday um, it was just like uh, it was a fire hose of information it was really good um, and uh, I recorded it so that's fantastic as well I hope I didn't miss a thing so okay 
Take our audience, uh, lay audience and professional audience, both listen here, and just kind of like let it go. Start with what is stimulation? Thank you, Hans. So stimulation has been a field that I have been uh, very curious about from the beginning. I was uh, introduced into this uh, therapy in the late 1990s, and for me it was amazing how some of these patients responded immediately after the trials, but it was also uh, confusing because there were some mediocre results in some of the patients, and many of those over time didn't respond appropriately. So what I tried to do back in the early uh, 2000 was to start looking of how did the spinal cord stimulator work and the main foundation for this therapy was established based on the so-called gate control theory. According to this theory, it is uh, relatively easy to understand that the electrical circuits communicate to each other like uh, the neurons, I'm sorry, the neurons communicate to each other Uh, like an electrical circuit. And based on this concept, if you apply uh, electrical pulses, you can modulate the conduction of these neurons. So that was a simple story for us to uh, get engaged in, and it explained the fundamental uh, concepts about it. But later on, because of my background in immunology, I started looking into, okay, something else had to be going on, because if the gate control theory was totally right, then patients should experience relief no matter which type of pain they had, whether it is nociceptive or neuropathic pain. But I would say that it's a general belief, whether it's true or not, is a different aspect, but it's a general belief that patients that have only um, nociceptive pain, let's say patients with uh, osteoarthritis of the knee, probably no, are not the best candidates for this type of therapy. So what I did is I went back to the lab and I started looking into, okay, let's see how I can do this um, basic science research to somehow emulate the clinical response that we were observing. Up until that time, most of the studies were done with uh, just a stimulation for a few minutes, which didn't reflect what we were doing with our patients. So we have to create a pain model and an implantation model right from the beginning. So there was no continuous stimulation model Uh, in animals. We created that, and then we start observing that after 24, 48, 72, or 96 hours, this is what we have explored so far, we could uh, improve the mechanical sensitivity, the the response that these animals had in terms of tolerance to pressure uh, after nerve injury. And then we started looking from uh, cell cultures to animal models, and then finally uh, all the genome expression of these animals when they were exposed to the electrical fields. And the results were really fascinating because we could observe how by modifying different parameters you could modify the expression of these genes. So that's when I realized that it is fundamental for us to have a solid understanding of the mechanism of action if we want in any way to improve the clinical outcomes. Just throwing different parameters without really understanding what is going on is not going to lead us to our holy grail, which is helping to improve our patient's quality of life. 
Yeah. Um, for folks that uh, are new to stimulation, there's some mechanisms that you just briefly touched on that we think are affiliated with uh, obtaining a result from a signal. And it's called neuromodulation, but it's been called everything else. Electricity, it's been called um, pain blocking, it's been called all sorts of things from kind of primitive to sophisticated, but um, you got into it yesterday pretty well. Um, Tell me what you would call it. Well, uh, interestingly, for the last hundred years, the field of neuroscience has uh, keep their eyes closed in terms of what is the main composition of the nervous system. the nerves have been the rock stars. You talk about neuroanatomy, neuro, neuro you talk about neuroscience, neurosurgery, uh, neuromodulation, neurology. Nobody mentions the other cells that are in the central nervous system. And when you look into that and you go into objective measurements of the different cells, one of the most uh, striking Uh, observations that we get is that when you look at the spinal cord, which is the tissue that you are applying the electrical fields to, 95% of the composition of this uh, tissue is glial cells. They are not neurons. So then you have to understand that the electrical fields that you are applying have minimal penetration into the dorsal column of the spinal cord, but they also are only affecting a really small minority of neurons. So there has to be some other effects. And I think that some of the most crucial um, modifications that we have observed in the last few years in the field of spinal cord stimulation is that the patients no longer require to have paresthesias to obtain pain relief. That means that the gate control theory that was based on the depolarization of A beta fibers to produce paresthesia is no longer required. And if it is not longer required, that means there is something else. And this is why we have been focusing into the effects of these electrical fields, not only on the neurons or on the glia, but in the neuroglial interaction, which is the one that is going to, at the end, uh, perpetuate uh, chronic pain. And there is significant amount of research over the last two decades that support the, the belief that without activation of these glial cells, there is not going to be generation of chronic pain. So we have to find ways in which we can have an effect on these cells and learn uh, different algorithms that can provide a normalization of the neuroglial interaction. Okay, well, I'm really glad you brought up glial cells because uh, we're actually going to have a whole podcast on glial cells. It used to be that we pretty much, you're right, they were ignored. We used to think that the neuro uh, matrix, the neuron, just kind of... bathed in glial cells, and the glial cells just sat there. But nope, they're alive, uh, breathing, and living, and they change what neurons do. And interestingly, glion, uh, glial cells do not like opioids, and uh, just the opposite. Uh, they, they can be neuromodulated, but opioids can make pain worse. That might explain why we have uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, et cetera. And I don't want to go too far in the weeds on this stuff right now. We'll get to it later. But with, with respect to neuromodulation, that's it. That's going to be a lot of it. 
because it's just not the neuron anymore, is it? You are absolutely right, and there is fascinating uh, research, uh, as I mentioned, for the last two, de two decades. Uh, Linda Watkins, for example, has extensively looked into how different... Um, Uh, pharmacological interactions or interventions can modify the effect of these glial cells. Unfortunately, so far, the, the majority of uh, attempts to use, for example, uh, minocycline or uh, pentoxifiline, which are different molecules that modulate the effects on the glial cells, have failed to provide the clinical results that we are uh, searching for. And probably the reason for that is because they have systemic application. One of the beauties of trying to modify the glial cells uh, in our case with the spinal cord stimulation is that we are providing direct effect on those cells. And these cells, uh, as you know, release uh, a significant uh, amount of pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines, which is a totally localized effect. So trying to control them at the source can be a way to uh, search for this uh, a safe and effective alternative to drug-based mechanisms that have led us to the uh, epidemic of uh, opioid that we are right now suffering. Okay, that's so true, and um, I'm impressed. Uh, Watkins uh, is, she's in at University of Colorado. She's amazing. She looked at IL-1 and eventually evolved to IL-10. That's interleukin-10. And she's developing ways to suppress cytokines from glial cells with stunning results. And she uses animals to show um, the effects like these poor dogs. I saw some videos that couldn't go up the stairs because of the advanced arthritis or, or inflammatory problems. They were given IL-10 and then they're puppies again. And this is real. And um, it's documented uh, by videography. So, uh, folks, uh, Watkins is uh, some good reading. It's uh, deep, but it can be found easily on the Internet. Um, okay, so more about neuromodulation. Um, and for those that really are just kind of new to stimulation, as I said, it's, it's not that we don't know what we're doing or it's all about gate theory. It's all about the more rapid evolution of our understanding of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. Um, some other neurophysiology that we're interested in is how do you take a patient who has had chronic pain and start turning things off with stimulation? Do you have any comments on that? Well, again, it's very hard. There is a lot of... Um marketing-supported um, initiatives in terms of whether one particular set of parameters can revert those patients that are failing with one therapy and make them uh, responders again. But once again, if you don't understand what the mechanism of action, you are probably not going to get long-term results with this new uh, variation of them. You need to understand the parameters if you want to really modify the neuroglial interaction. And this is what my uh, clinical research, my basic science research has been focused over the last 10 years. And for those that don't know, he's a, he is a researcher. And uh, both him and Ben Yaman are legit. They publish and They are sought after to uh, solve one problem after another, uh, not just in a laboratory, but in real life clinically. 
and we appreciate that work. So, um, okay, uh, take away with more uh, uh, neuromodulation. If you if you could stand in front of a provider or a patient and say this is what's new with neuromodulator uh, stimulators, um, you would say we have burst, we have high frequency, we have. Uh, some of the new um, DRG technologies. What would you tell them uh, is best for them? I think the most important uh, consideration is that from the beginning, for those that are started into the field, they have to uh, have a very active and critical role in terms of evaluating what is presented to them. I mean, we are all used that a rep comes into our practice and tell us how amazing the results are based on very limited studies. I think it's fundamental that you uh, participate in different um, uh, ways into the evaluation of the evidence that is available. One source, for example, could be uh, systematic uh, randomized control trials, which ACP is so strong about that. We are currently writing one on neuromodulation. And I think uh, when you start looking into that, you will find something interesting that has happened over the last few years. And is that after some randomized control trials provide uh, scientifically um, a strong evidence for the benefit of one therapy over another, there has been a flood of different short studies, many of them retrospective, claiming that maybe the effects are not uh, the right ones. And I think everybody that gets into this field is going to have to face the patient. And it's the responsibility of the physicians who really critically evaluate what is going to offer to the patient and not let some marketed strategy uh, promote one therapy or another. At the end of the day, is the physician that has been able to gain the trust from the patient and who is able to implant these leads, the one that is going to face the patient whether or not one therapy fails. So I think we have to be very careful, and probably that will be my main message. Don't just let them tell you what is going on and just become a technician putting leads in the epidural space without really trying to understand what is going on. In this day and age, when some of the pharmaceutical agents are failing to provide the relief that we want uh, to our patients, uh, the opportunity to have a new um, therapy for them, one that is safe and effective, opens the door to start deeply looking into what are we doing to the tissues. So it's pretty much what we learned back in the residency. We have to look into... Uh, electrodynamics and electrokinetics and we have to be responsible the, the same way that we have been for generations in terms of understanding the mechanism of actions of our drugs and how they will affect our patients. You're right. Let's go down the line in about uh, two or three sentences. Uh, DRG, who gets that? Well, DRG has shown in the accurate study uh, very clear benefit in patients who have um, CRPS or causalgia, it has to be uh, recognized that it cannot be placed above T11, which means that in patients with CRPS in the upper extremities, which is probably the most common form of CRPS, it cannot be used. Uh, but right now in the U.S., we are limited to lower extremities. But it's really fascinating how at very, very low amplitudes, because of the targeting of nerves that are 
um, really involved into distal uh, modulation of the signals, the painful signals in this case for CRPS, you can obtain excellent results with the patients. Okay. Uh, frequency. Uh, we hear that thrown around a lot. What, what do we do there? That is a very good question. And uh, the main problem that I think we are uh, having right now is that we are confusing what high frequency means. Does it high frequency means 10 kilohertz or does it mean 1,000 hertz or 1,200 hertz below uh, sensory threshold. And uh, they are trying to mix the two of them. I think the mechanism uh, be behind the two therapies is totally different. The idea was that if you can apply uh, frequencies in the around 1,000 with uh, longer pulse width, the amount of density, the current density applied for one therapy, in this case, uh, I will call it high frequency below 1,500 versus 10 kilohertz will be the same. Uh, I would say that the major weakness of the 10 kilohertz therapy, despite they have a strong randomized uh, control data, is the lack of a credible mechanism of action that support this therapy. It has shown in this uh, study in the sense of randomized control trials that patients respond, but how do they respond and what will you do when the patient doesn't respond? Because if you don't understand the mechanism of action, then you cannot improve the therapy. Burst. Burst is an interesting concept also. Uh, it, has, it is a form of uh, uh, high frequency in the sense that the frequency delivered is at uh, 500 uh, hertz, which means we have uh, in, in different pulses, there is companies that promote four, seven, and the original one which was uh, five uh, uh, different pulses at one millisecond amplitude with intervals of uh, five milliseconds to allow for the charge balance to, to be obtained in the tissues. Uh, and they, in this uh, sunburst study, showed marginal benefits when compared with uh, conventional stimulation. It is definitely in animal models an alternative, as seems to be a more efficient way to deliver current. Uh, but so far, we don't have uh, a strong clinical evidence that um, supports the preference of one uh, conventional uh, stimulation in this case versus burst stimulation to treat uh, consistently our patients. Other new technologies? That's a very good question. I think right now we have to first understand what the, these therapies, but I think you summarize most of what is going on right now in terms of uh, marketing available uh, therapies. I think we're, uh, we're going to start seeing uh, new marketing to uh, stimulators that are um, without a generator that is implanted. Um, and, uh, you know, it uses an older approach, uh, RF energy, radio frequency, and you're an expert in radio frequency. But as it applies to stimulation, how would you compare when, when a patient or an advocate says, we need a generator, and it's either rechargeable or not. How long does it last or not? When do we replace it or not? And what about this one that doesn't need a generator on the inside? Well, the concept of the, the use of radio frequency um, uh, distal access to uh, stimulate the... the um, 
contacts into the spinal canal or in the periphery is extremely attractive. For whatever reason, though, um, I would say anecdotally, I have not seen that the physicians or patients have embraced this therapy. Uh, I'm getting older, and as I look backward, back in the 1990s, there was a relatively similar results. We have, uh, the technology was not as, ad- as advanced as the new um, lead without generation is, but Patients back in those days had to put a external patch with some battery source to be able to uh, stimulate the contacts. That was the ANS, radio frequency system, uh, which required a really, really minimal uh, incision to place the, the battery. Despite that, it was never... Uh, embraced by the medical community and uh, the newest uh, uh, steam wave therapy uh, has proposed a way more technologically advanced system Uh, but I don't think that despite they have been out for a while it has not been embraced while they can provide all type of parameters uh, all type of frequencies and even positioning of the leads in the periphery, in the DRG, and in the dorsal columns. But again, for me, it's kind of surprising why nobody is really uh, closely paying attention of this, I would say, innovative way to apply electrical currents. Peripheral nerve stimulation. I think that because of the market, it's a very small market. There has not been enough studies. And uh, we know from the uh, past experiences that there is a potential to create a lot of fibrosis or scar tissue close to the nerve. So I don't know what will be the long-term results. There was a lot of times that we were doing uh, putting fat in between the lead and the nerves to prevent uh, uh, this scarring. And now most of the procedures are done percutaneously with the placement of the leads under ultrasound guidance. Uh, Once again, I don't know what will be the long-term benefit. It's hard to get patients with mononeuropathy that will be candidates for this uh, therapy by itself. Okay, so this is a huge subject. We've scratched the surface. I'm wearing you out. (laughs) If I left something uh, out that's uh, important uh, to uh, say with relevance to what we've talked about today that you want to add? Well, I think we went through that, Hans. I think my main message is as a physician, you have the obligation to provide the best therapy to your patients. So be critical when you read that. And the patients also have to get involved in the decision process. Well, I appreciate uh, this talk. This is, this is great information. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's important that people... Uh, have the opportunity to visit you or get in touch with you. How do they get in touch with you? Well, we are in uh, Bloomington, Illinois, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, our website is millenniumpaincenter.com, and um, we will be more than glad to try to uh, facilitate some uh, educational material or trying to inform the patients about what is the best way to treat uh, their condition. So believe me when I say world-class care, and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for being on, Ricardo. Thank you very much, Hans. That was great. I appreciate uh, just sitting with him and listening to uh, a real good uh, uh, professional uh, interaction that I I just don't get uh, very often. I... 
I love interviewing uh, the folks at ASAP because these folks keep up. And as you just heard, this is some cutting-edge stuff. So we look forward to seeing you at the annual meeting. And uh, we, uh, as a matter of fact, have another meeting coming up, and that's going to be in uh, February, 22nd to be exact. And it's going to be endoscopic neuromodulation regenerative medicine. So that'll be a fun meeting. Interventional techniques will, of course, be there, and it'll be in Orlando. The annual meeting, not so bad, Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas. So we, a few years ago, had a meeting in Las Vegas and had a, had a ball. You know, you, you might as well bring your spouse or whomever because uh, it just doesn't stop in Las Vegas. I mean, you, you just... Uh, you, t- you take the meeting, you have some fun, you have some fellowship, and then you take it for uh, the evening fun, and you go out and have some of the best meals. If you're into shows, you can you see some shows. It's not about gambling, really, anymore. It's about it's about eating and doing. So uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. I've got some great interviews with Miles Day and uh, others that I'm looking forward to sharing, and we'll see you soon.